This is The Busyness Podcast. I'm Emily Austin, founder of London-based PR agency Emerge. I'm passionate about launching and scaling small businesses, and I've been fortunate enough to work with some of the most exciting, category-defining brands in the world. I started my own business when I was fresh out of university in 2012, and since then, the world has become louder, our expectations have become harder to meet, and our lives have all become busier. We're constantly fobbing off friends with the stock answer we've all become accustomed to, I'm too busy. But when did being too busy become a mark of status? Why is the goal to never have any free time? And just what the fuck is everyone doing? In this podcast, I sit down with some of the most exciting entrepreneurs, CEOs and founders in the world, asking how they manage their time, their lives, their brains, and of course, their busyness, to find out how they're able to cut through the noise and create some of our favorite brands. This week, a really exciting episode. I've got the founders of Modern House, Albert Hill and Matt Gibbard. I absolutely loved sitting and chatting to the guys. I didn't know them before the podcast, but obviously was familiar with their business. Anyone who's dreamt of buying a house in the last 10 years or actually managed to do so probably had a look at Modern House in their process. The guys are so interested authentically in architecture and design um, as previous journalists in that space what they've managed to achieve with modern house is truly amazing a business that has no real competitors they have really injected care art photography design architecture and love into the idea of building a home which is something really unique when you think about other brands in the space it's absolutely no surprise to me having spoken to them why they're so successful they're super grounded they really understand their strengths and weaknesses and interestingly in this episode we did talk a lot about recruitment which doesn't always get points for being the sexiest topic but I think for anyone starting building growing or running a business it is something that is really challenging and so insights particularly the ones the guys gave me are really really helpful it's an open honest chat with two people who are lovely, who founded an amazing business. And I think they're really inspiring to show people the type of balance that can exist in a business. So I hope you enjoy the episode and manage to take away something helpful for you on your business journey. To start, could you guys tell me a little bit more about what you were doing before you started Modern House? Well, we were both magazine journalists specialising in design and architecture. I had actually just left the World of Interiors magazine to go and study architecture because I kind of naively thought that I could jump back into a huge profession like that slightly later in life. So sort of mid-20s, I thought, damn, I should have been an architect like my dad and my grandfather. So I did a term at architecture school. In the interim, Albert and I talked about this idea for the modern house, our business. He was working as a, as a freelance um, writer and editor at that point. And I personally had a decision to make about whether I pursue seven years of architecture or whether I give this business idea a go. And for me, that was quite a sliding doors moment. And I think I made the right choice, but it was kind of interesting looking back on it. Yeah, I mean, I'd 
started to get a bit bored with journalism, I suppose. I mean, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Loved all the people that I met and all the places that I went to. But, you know, the writing was on the wall a little bit for journalism in terms of the money around Mm -hmm. as well. So I actually decided that I wanted to sell furniture, like vintage furniture, design-led pieces. I thought that'd be a fun thing to do. So I bought a load of it. I stored it all in my father's garage, getting ready to like launch this great business. And basically, I failed to say anything. And my dad phoned me up one day and said, get this crap out of my garage. It's just like gathering dust and I keep tripping over every day. So I was like, oh, this is not going well. And then I got asked to write a story about an estate agency out in America that um, particularly sold really interesting mid-century modern houses in Florida. And I thought, well, there's a good idea because... Well, you don't have to store houses. <laughs> you know, I thought that's quite neat. You know, you have no stock to look after, but yeah. you still get to work with these fantastic bits of design. You still get to work with these fantastic people. So in a way, it was a little bit like our journalism mm-hmm. days of basically going to see wonderful people in wonderful houses. But rather than writing about them, you kind of tried to persuade them to sell it. So that's how we sort of looked at it in a way, wasn't it, at the beginning? Because now, obviously, entrepreneurialism is much more accessible and we hear about people with side hustles and and being entrepreneurs. But in 2005, what was happening at the time? It was definitely radical to be an estate agent, to kind of give up the glamorous, slightly glamorous life anyway of, you know, journalist or design journalist or architect and join the um the mini driving brigade of uh, estate agents but that was why we were able to bring a kind of breath of fresh air to it really yeah i think we chose it because it didn't need any formal training as well that was the yeah. joy of it but i think looking back actually i can't think of any of ours because we're, we're old school friends i can't think of any of our peers who were doing something similar they were all you know pursuing professional careers at mm. that point so yeah i think probably it was fairly unusual you talked about sort of you'd had the idea before so when you were making the decision about architecture it was like we've got this other idea that we've discussed how much in its infancy was that at that time or was it like we're ready to go with no, this it was other? that it was that summer wasn't it it was yes. the summer where we sort of formulated it um, yeah we just started having conversations about it and and yeah and i was due to start in september at architecture school so was, I, I think i did a full term and at christmas Albert had been doing a few months from his bedroom of of kind of getting everything started. And then I kind of joined him just after Christmas. Yeah. And then I had, I think I had a, a trip abroad planned. So I said to you, can you like hold the fort? I think holding the fort meant answering one phone call, but you know, <laughs> um, yeah, can you was. hold the fort whilst I'm yes, on holiday? You can, yeah. <laughs> yes, you can. Yeah. It was, it was properly amateurish, wasn't it? I was thinking about it this morning. You know, we had a, we had no 845 phone number. We had a PO box mail address yeah no one could track us down if you rang us it was probably sort of 30 percent likelihood of us actually answering it right and it went on like that for quite a while didn't it Mm -hmm. so it was proper cottage industry stuff the classic bedroom Mm -hmm. startup but you know i mean internet-based estate agency just wasn't a thing yeah Zoopla hadn't even been invented yet. Any of the portals themselves were not what they are now. Mm-hmm. Um, Rightmove was quite a kind of low rent thing that no one really used that much. It was very, very traditional. Yeah. Industry. yeah. Everyone used prime location at that point, didn't they? Funnily enough. And that was even a new thing. Yeah. yeah. We just did things based on our instinct, using our editorial lens, falling back on our backgrounds in, I suppose, an aesthetic judgment of things. So, you know, we started commissioning our photographer friends to shoot the houses that we took on to sell. 
we started going to the library and, and researching historical research about each house we were selling mm-hmm. and just trying to package everything up with a bit more of a provenance in a way mm-hmm. um, to give people a good reason to pay more for it than they otherwise would have done. And I mean, I think actually that complete lack of knowledge about what we were doing was actually massively valuable. I mean, it, you know, you look back and you see a load of shortcuts that you missed, of course. But in terms of growing a sort of authentic, organic business in the way that you thought it, things should be done rather than the way that they always had been done, mm-hmm. you know, that was really, really useful and, and kind of still stands us in good stead today, doesn't it, really? It does. What's so interesting is obviously you've editorialized the estate agency business and created this beautiful, well-researched, interesting, kind of historically backed proposition why do you think no one else has got near to you in terms of competing with what you're doing? Because none of those other estate agents that people could list have, have even really tried or maybe tried and failed to do anything similar. Why do you think that it's been so unique in terms of being untouchable as a business within this industry? I mean, I think that very few people go into a state agency because they love homes and they love design and they love the whole, um, you know, interesting, emotional and creative background of home. They go into a state agency to make a load of money selling houses and not that we're averse to making a load of money. But, you know, like we came from it from a starting position of genuinely being massively interested in the story of home, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm not saying that there aren't people in the state agency are also interested but it's kind of that interest came first in a way wasn't it and so it's just natural to us yeah exactly for us actually starting the modern house was a way to very actively pursue our interest in design and architecture and the way that people live Mm -hmm. whilst also making a half decent living from it because actually we Mm -hmm. kind of figured that got paid 500 quid for writing an article for a magazine actually if we sold one of these houses we could make ourselves like ten thousand pounds yeah and that was really thrilling. So that was the basis of it for us in the early days, essentially. It was. That was the economics of it. Mm. And it, it was like, you know, how can we feed ourselves whilst seeing basically as many great houses as we possibly yeah. can? And we were like two nerds. We used to make kind of top trumps of, of like the best houses in the UK <laughs> and give them ratings. And yeah. there was a sort of obsessive element to it as well. 2005, you started. It's now mm. 2023. Where was the point or at what point did it? change from being you sort of hustling for new business as it were and going to people's Mm. homes and saying this is a fabulous home I'd love to list it to your inbox is full because everyone wants to be featured on on the platform it was a very slow start but when we started to get some instructions it snowballed pretty quickly Mm -hmm. people would always come up to me and say oh I loved you guys from the beginning you know fantastic and I said well why didn't you use us at the beginning it's so frustrating and they, they always said kind of, you know, we knew you could talk the talk, but could you walk the walk? Right. And actually, you know, if your home is your biggest kind of financial and emotional asset, right? Mm-hmm. So you, even if you like someone who just walks in the door, it's a much bigger decision to actually give them the responsibility sure. to sell your home. So as soon as we kind of proved that not only did we kind of look good, but we could mm-hmm. also achieve really good prices and, you know, have a really good service offering and all that other stuff that backed up a proper grown-up business. That's when it all started yeah. to snowball. Exactly. And I think the catalyst for any good business is sound recruitment in the end. Mm-hmm. And I think that once we cracked that, we were away. But 
Mm. In the early days, when you're a small business, it's incredibly hard to attract the right talent. And, you know, that that was a real challenge for us, especially as we were operating in an industry where it was synonymous with mistrust and, you know, yeah. probably not doing things the right way. And as Albert alluded to, making money at all costs. And actually, that's not what we were trying to do. Yeah. So it's very hard to recruit people with the right level of intelligence and empathy, to be honest. Yeah. Once we found that we could give people a job who were maybe a bit earlier in their career and who had the right sensibility and had the right values, but not necessarily any knowledge of really how to operate inside a business, let alone mm. an estate agency. We realized we could teach them the nuts and bolts of how you actually do the selling bit, but in a way you can't really teach someone that values piece. Mm. So that that was what unlocked it. Well, I guess probably one of the challenges is you're disrupting an industry. So you're trying to find people who have that hybrid that you have, which is the mm. design, architectural, editorial side with the deep personal connection and interest in the property and the capacity to sell, which obviously didn't really exist because no business had done that before. So you're trying to sort of retrofit that skill set. Well, absolutely. And the other thing you need is a deep emotional intelligence because, you know, right. when people are selling their homes, I think it's always listed as one of the most stressful, difficult times of people's lives. So, yeah. you know, there's a lot of uh, emotion coursing around yeah. um, the deals. So, you know, you have to really be able to to handle that in a way that both buyer and seller emerge from the process, thinking that actually, you know what, that was actually quite yeah. decent. And, yeah, and I, th- I was going to say, I was going to add to that. I think Albert and I are possibly relatively unusual in the entrepreneurial space. I mean, I don't know, but to an extent in that we're not very sort of type A alpha about it all. We're quite sensitive, conscientious people. And actually, <laughs> as a result, from the outset, it's really bothered us if the client has a good time or not. Right. So actually, again, feeding back to who you therefore employ, Mm -hmm. they have to care about the human side of what they do. Mm. And probably the downside to that is, you know, we probably haven't always recruited people that have that kind of, I suppose, make money at all costs mentality, but we'd rather it that way around. Yeah. Yeah, it's very hard to find that absolute perfect crossover of cultural and commercial fit. There are definitely people out there and we've got definitely got some people in our company that fit that. But, you know, we definitely lean towards the cultural rather than the the commercial. It's that whole sort of, you know, attitude over aptitude thing. It's interesting what you said before about sort of social proof. These people who said, oh, I followed Mm. you from the beginning and only now do I sort of take seriously. (laughs) I read a quote that you visited somebody to sort of pitch yourselves for their house. Mm. And they said, I've been waiting for someone like you Mm. to to show up. And so I guess it was almost like the service people didn't really know that they needed because it just hadn't previously been packaged up. Mm. What else was happening at that time in the industry? Mm. You mentioned sort of Zoopla hadn't really yes. become what it was, but what was it? Was it like the high street estate agent that felt more like a kind of wheeler dealer sell, sell, sell? What else was happening in the industry? It was. I think the biggest challenge we had at the beginning was that people didn't understand how you could operate in a state agency without an office. Right. They just didn't get that, did they? They were like, well, where are you going to, you know, how are you going to put my your picture of my house in your window yeah. if you haven't got a window? It was so interesting that. Yeah. And it was all about sort of putting things in the local newspaper as well. And we were like, yeah, yeah. We, we did it just to satisfy our clients. We would do, you know, print advertising just really if they really, really, really wanted it. Yeah. Most of the time we try and get them to pay for it because it never worked. And actually, as funnily enough, the rise of Purple Bricks and the other larger online agencies has really helped us, not because they're competitors at all, 
but because the public have got comfortable with the idea that you don't have to be mm-hmm. on the high street anymore. You've got properties that range under a million, over 10 million. You know, there's a very large range of value of property. Was there a point at which you unlocked the secret sauce to mm. taking on those much bigger properties? Well, I think first of all, it's always been massively important to us that we do represent a price spectrum. We never want to be seen as just a kind of high end. Yeah. So, you know, we we kind of discriminate by sort of design rather than by price. Mm-hmm. Um but yes, the what we did make a conscious decision, what was it, maybe three years ago, to have a dedicated department that dealt with houses over three million. Yeah. And they do offer a slightly differentiated service just mm-hmm. because the fees are much higher in that in that area. So mm-hmm. the expectations of service are a lot higher. How often do people come to you and say, what would I need to do to be on the website? And we're willing to sort of renovate in line with what your aesthetic is and what you expect from a design perspective? A lot, actually. We spend a lot of our time going to see prospective clients or maybe not prospective clients, to see people who have an interest in improving their home in a way that will not only satisfy their needs, but also have an eye on resale as well. Mm-hmm. And there are for sure certain things that you can do on that front. And we're really happy to do that. So our appraisers who go and give valuations to people, they spend a huge amount of time on the road going to see people that have no intention of selling and that's absolutely fine. Right. We wouldn't want that to come across sort of elitist in some way. Is that The kind of downside of our business model has always been that we turn away about 50% of the work that's offered to us, which is sounds very odd from a commercial standpoint. Um, but actually, we, we see it, it's an editorial decision, right? Mm-hmm. Initially, if there's a particular house that you think fits for your audience and that they will respond positively to, then brilliant. If you feel like actually it probably wouldn't go down very well, in a way there's there's no point in wasting everybody's time and yeah. taking it on. Which um, global territory do you think has the best <laughs> architecture for a home? Oh, gee. I mean, you know, I, I think one of the things that's interesting is that when we started the business, people were like, the modern heritage of British architecture is rubbish you know you want to go to america or you want to go to australia or even switzerland yeah you're never going to find enough good homes but part of the fun of it has been sort of dragging up all these sort of you know lost gems um and actually realizing that that the uk has got a really very rich um architecture history from that period Mm -hmm. and of course a, a much older period so i mean yes the obvious ones are you know america and australia and switzerland and things like that but if you go to any country you'll you know there'll be a lot to discover yeah you mentioned selling furniture. Yeah. What were your early entrepreneurial flares? Like, did, was there a point in your teens or earlier? You were obviously at school together, but was, was there any, like, you know, selling things in, in the playground or being interested in sort of the transaction of buying and selling? I, I was a very early adopter of eBay and would sit, uh, buy trainers from America on eBay and sell them in the UK. When I would, that was when I was at university. I think that was like my first university. I discovered this website. It's like, oh my God, this is crazy. So I did a bit of, yeah, trainer selling hustle. Yeah. And it's quite funny. My son, who's now 12, is doing it and selling trainers online, you know, on Depop or wherever it is. Yeah, and whatever like, the one God, is now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, the world's a different place now. <laughs> I suppose if I look back on it, I've always been an editor, I think. And, you know, I remember I was obsessed with athletics when I was a kid and I used to cobble together these funny newspapers 
about the sports day that we had at school and things like that. Always trying to kind of edit what was going on around me. And then I think the other thing is I was always very obsessed with houses as well. And that came from my parents. You know, my dad was an architect. My grandfather also was as well. And my my dad bought and sold a lot of property when I was young and showed me how that process worked. Mm -hmm. And I used to work on building sites for projects he was doing, things like that. So I think that exposure to the importance of one's home and how you can transform it Mm -hmm. in interesting ways was really formative within the context of the business that that we run. Your co-founders, you were at school together, you go way back. What are some of the benefits and challenges of working in a co-founder partnership? I mean, I think the benefits are very obvious. You know, you've always got someone there mm-hmm. to share something with, to bounce ideas off of, to, you know, I often find I think about something and I'm not sure whether I'm confident in that or not. And you just chat through it with, with, with Matt and you either think, yeah, absolutely, I was right, or no, I did get that a bit wrong. Yeah. And that's just massively valuable. It is. I think the number one thing is trust, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. actually trust is quite hard to come by in life and the workplace. <laughs> yeah. uh, but if, you, if you've if you known someone, as we have for nearly 30 years, it's implicit. And I think that's mm-hmm. actually a, a kind of really lovely thing to have. It's worth saying as well, actually, the thing about a, a duo is that there's no casting vote. So yeah. actually we've always, always had a third eye, you know, in the form of a non-exec or a chairman, mm-hmm. just to really help us with key decision-making. And someone who's just a bit, a bit more seasoned in, in the business environment, that, that's something that I would mm. hugely recommend to anyone starting a business, to be honest. And also, I think that, you know, because Matt and I went to the same school, we're the same age, we're the same gender, you know, all this kind of yeah. stuff. And we do find very luckily that we agree on most things i mean of course we have our disagreements so in a way sometimes we kind of i feel like we overlap too much so it's good to get other voices in the room to bring in different experiences and ideas has that been in the form of mentors or non-exec directors or yeah less so mentors more actually pretty hands-on non-execs who sit in on monthly board meetings right um you know we've had for many years now uh, you know a a very sort of defined rhythm of meetings and i suppose increasingly formal monthly forums for debating everything from the minutiae to the much bigger picture Mm -hmm. formalizing it monthly i think is is personally i think is the way to go and then of course you can always pick up the phone in between times as well if you haven't but we've also had kind of consultants come in Mm -hmm. And, you know, the hit rate hasn't always been particularly high, but when they do hit, you know, it's really transformative for your business, we've found. In terms of practical steps to launch the business, Mm. was there a very clear delineation of skill sets amongst the two of you as co-founders? Was it, I'm going to do this, you're going to do this? You know, obviously two people can't lead necessarily. It was actually more geographic because Matt lived in London at the time and I lived in kind of Surrey, Hampshire and so Matt would basically deal with the London homes and I would deal with the out of London homes. I mean, I love driving around the countryside, mm-hmm. you know, on road trips and Matt doesn't like that so much. So that worked really, really exactly, well. Exactly. Yeah, I'd be on a sort of smog-filled underground train whilst exactly. I would be on the M25 or, you know, that, and that's that, that's sort of how we divided it up. I mean, uh, you know, aside from the logistics, they you know, they're naturally you just fall into certain things that you feel comfortable doing, don't yeah. you? So, yeah, of course, there's been various divisions as well. I mean, Albert, I'm very grateful, has, has, you know, from the early days looked after the financial side more. Mm -hmm. Um, I probably looked after more of the kind of brand marketing side. 
there's been a lot of overlap on everything yeah. and we've very much done it as a team but it was quite useful to know if the phone rang and it was evaluation of a house in London or Cornwall it was very clear who's going to go and do it right advice for co-founders listening would you say mm. you know you've mentioned actually you're very similar in lots of ways despite mm. having different skill sets but both were working in journalism magazines mm. same school same gender <laughs> same age etc often the advice for co-founders is sort of pick someone with a very different skill set to you well I, th- I think that basically you know matt and i that thing of trust is both really important kind yeah. of personally you know in terms of personal values so that's sort of been number one for Matt and I is to like maintain that that trusting relationship. Yeah. So I would say that's the most important thing that like on a real sort of basic moral compass values type level, you chime with the person and then all the other stuff can be worked out on top, really. But also to your point, yes, there are a lot of similarities in our backgrounds, <laughs> but actually we are very different people, funnily enough. And if I could characterise it, I would say that Albert's a starter and I'm a finisher. Okay. So that combination has been mm. really, Perfect. really useful. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Matt, you've talked about the importance of light in the context of insomnia before. And we hear that success is directly proportionate to the sacrifice you're willing to make. Are there <laughs> downsides to running a business? Is insomnia a symptom perhaps of a fast paced entrepreneurial life? It is. I mean, I was, I was reflecting on this earlier, actually, and I, I think... And I, I don't want to speak for Albert too much, but in a way, I think part of the reason both of us do this is because we're actually quite anxious, sensitive people. And it, I think if you do your own thing, there's a there's an element of control that you can have over your life. And I right. think that's that actually drives quite a lot of entrepreneurs, I think, is this feeling that I, I can't work for the man anymore because I don't know what's coming up. You know, at least I'm in charge of my own thing. Yeah. I haven't slept very well since I was a kid, but I i mean, it comes in waves. It, it depends. But yeah, I, I wrote about in my book, A Modern Way to Live, that, you know, using natural light and artificial light in the right way, you can actually have really quite a profound impact on that. Whether it's, you know, positioning your desk in a spot that's, you know, got enough natural light so you get enough early in the day, mm-hmm. or whether it's, you know, not having too much artificial light in the evening in your house. I think it's really quite interesting that the effect of things like light and diet and exercise on the way that you sleep. Mm-hmm. I mean, Albert and I are both quite obsessive runners as well. And I learned quite early on that you can use exercise as well to really mediate that anxiety that you feel when you're, uh, you know, when you're running a business, and you've got a lot of things coming at you. Yeah. But I think that, um, you know, when you think about strategy in terms of running a business, I think that you also need to have a strategy for kind of rest and recuperation as a founder. Mm-hmm. You can't just go, oh, I'll get around to having a bit of rest, yeah. you know, when I've got a spare minute. Oh, I'll get around to having a run or, you know, going to the gym. Mm-hmm. I get a minute. You've absolutely got to sit down and go, you know, part of my building of my life as a founder has got to have all these kind of zones of recuperation in it, you know. Mm-hmm. Do you think the narrative has evolved? Because I think probably... I started in 2012 and it was like, stay in the office till midnight, drink coffee until you have a panic attack. You know, like you're sort of running everywhere because you're late. And it's sort of this terrible narrative that's like more is more is more. And obviously in the last few years, people have perhaps been reconnected a little bit more in a broader sense with the idea of rest, recovery, recuperation, etc. At times, those things feel incompatible with the reality of running a business. Do you think for entrepreneurs starting their entrepreneurial journey now that they are set up well with enough information about that type of balance 
Well, I do think there's two different ways of kind of operating. I think Matt's always been very good at having a kind of structure to your day in life. Um, whereas I quite like, you know, being in the zone and like absolutely going for it yeah. once you've kind of in the zone, as it were, and then taking some downtime afterwards and it being less structured. So I think there's two different ways, mm -hmm. just as long as you do get the the rest and relaxation in. But yes, absolutely. This idea of just going nonstop and just being fueled by caffeine and, yeah. and whatever else you might want yeah. to be fueled by. I mean, everyone knows that that's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, they, they, do, they do, but I think it's important to say it, isn't it? It is nonsense. Actually, there is another way. You can do it in a, in a quieter way. You can do it in a more measured way. But you don't have to, I don't think, work yourself into the ground. That's personally. right. And we had a very senior person in our organisation that just sort of wore it as a badge of honour that they never took a rest, yeah. you know, um, and just couldn't get their head around that the people above them wanted them to have a rest. And that was actually a good sign, not yeah. a, a sign of weakness. So we really almost had to kind of book their holidays for them. Yeah, no, but it's really important. I mean, certainly when I started, I remember a mentor saying to me, you've got a red line time because the mm. hours you give out have to be repaid at some point. And I was like, I mean, what does he know? He's only 45 and really experienced. And I think for me, it was like, to your point, the badge of honour of like always being tired and like jacked up on caffeine and like in the saying you left the office at 10 became this kind of mark of success for me early on. And it was only mm. probably three or four years in that I, you know, experienced various forms of burnout and whatever else and realised that actually this is, totally unsustainable and as an entrepreneur you're the business asset so if you're fucked mm. then the whole thing kind of Absolutely. falls apart we see and hear through podcasts and social media a huge amount from other entrepreneurs who share various insights into the way that they work whether it's productivity hacks all the way through to kind of failings and successes do you think social media sets unrealistic standards particularly for people in business and what is your relationship with social media? I mean, I think social media is a tool that, and it's sort of more dependent on the people who use it as opposed to the tool itself. So you can use social media in a really unhealthy way. Like a friend of mine's just come back from holiday in Asia. And if you looked at her Instagram feed, it was just the most idyllic holiday. Yeah. So when she came back, I was like, oh, you had a great holiday. And of course, no, she had an absolutely awful time. She <laughs> yeah. broke up with her partner. She had a major anxiety. You know, it's like, yeah. you know, it's just like, that's just ridiculous. You know, that that's a real mismatch. Um, however, I also massively enjoy other people's Instagram feeds yeah. that are a little bit more authentic, I suppose. So I don't think the problem is with the tool, it's with the users and whatever you have, it's the same thing. Why do you think there's so much pressure created to present such a idyllic version because particularly in business obviously if you've got shareholders and staff there's a level of appropriateness to you know you sort of sobbing on camera on a shit day is probably not <laughs> ideal um, but I mean some people do do that but it's sort of there's there's sort of professional infrastructures that, that need to exist but in terms of this idea of like reality being so divorced from people's perception online is that do you think it's just that people market their lives in the way that you've done with your business you've sort of created this much more aesthetically pleasing thoughtful product do you think it's just that people do that now with their holidays or their their lives you know that yeah they, they do and i think the i think where we all go wrong is that obviously you know very obviously at the base level we're, we're tribal and we mistake yep. the whole world for our tribe so when we <laughs> post something up on instagram we think that that community out there is 
judging us. And of course, you know, you're always going to get negativity coming back from such a large community. You know, between our two brands, we've got nearly a million Instagram followers. That's a lot of people. And some of those people are going to say negative things and you have to kind of get used to that. They are not reflective of everyone. And they're certainly not reflective of the people that are very close to you. Mm -hmm. I find, you know, with one's personal social media accounts, I would use the word Albert used, which is tool again. I I think, you know, if you use it as a tool to feed into your business, which Mm -hmm. is kind of how I see it, then, you know, you can't go too far wrong. But I think we're all sensitive to criticism, aren't we? Mm. You know, there's nothing like putting something out into the world, you know, to really, I suppose, shine a light on your insecurity. And I think you've got to work quite hard to block it out and not look at the comments. So I I personally make a really deliberate attempt to not read comments Mm -hmm. on Instagram or, you know, a review of my book, for example. I mean, terrifying. You know, you've got to just not look at it. Because it can only go one way, I think. Well, there's a vulnerability, isn't yeah. there, with putting out something that you've created and sort of asking people to decide whether it's good enough. Have you ever been trolled? I only in a very minor way. Oh. I was kind of hoping you were going to say yes, <laughs> I was going to congratulate you. But... No, I, th- I, th- I, think the, I think the problem that we have, which is completely justified, is that there is a cost of living crisis and a housing crisis. And actually, mm. you know, w- with what we do, it glamorizes a way of living that a lot of people can only aspire to. So mm. we totally understand that. Unfortunately, those forces are kind of, you know, beyond all of our control. And that's not to say we don't feel it and acknowledge it, but people do sometimes come at us with that one. And it's a hard one to argue against because yeah. we get it. I guess, you know, you've picked a business and a category and a consumer that works and packaged it up. And that isn't necessarily for everyone in every instance so I, you're right there's people that sit outside of that that perhaps feel confronted by the idea of that it being inaccessible to them mm-hmm. that's right exactly and it also it's our it's our job to um frankly do the best job that we can for our client and package something up as best we can and really try and get them the best possible price yeah sometimes that means we do sell things for a lot more money than they might otherwise go for And that's great for our client Mm -hmm. and it's great for the profile of that building or that architect and so on. Not necessarily so good for, you know, the wider property market and everyone trying to get on the housing ladder. So it's it's a tough one. What are some of the mistakes that you've made? We now have a brilliant second brand to the modern house called Inigo. And whereas the modern house concentrates on modernist principles, through Inigo we sell and celebrate, you know, more traditional Georgian, Victorian, Edwardian housing. We had a stab at doing that in a similar way back in 2007, eight, mm-hmm. where we'd gotten the modern house going. We realised that it was a, a great model and we came up with something called the Georgian house Uncanny, right? And, and well, what marketing genius is doing that? I know, I know. Come on, you know. Frankly, we launched it into the headwind of a pretty serious economic downturn at that right. point. We also really were such a cottage industry. We don't, we didn't really understand what we were doing at that point. And I think that we learned quite a lot from that because we came back fifteen years later, nearly, and launched Inigo, which mm-hmm. has been a great success, which is essentially a very similar idea. Yeah. But of course we've got a lot more knowledge around what we're doing. And I think the other thing I would say is that um we made a lot of mistakes with recruitment because we we hired quite a few people from within a state agency who just who just didn't quite understand the nuance of what we were trying to do, I think, yeah. to an extent. And I think there were a lot of really, really good people within our industry, but they tend to be working for 
the big brands earning a lot of money yeah. and have been doing it for many, many years and then they're not going anywhere. There are also quite a lot of people that fall into agency because it's sort of an easy thing to do. And as we said earlier, they do it just because it's a way to make money. Mm-hmm. Um, those are not really the kind of people that we want working for us. I mean, thinking about sort of particular mistakes that we've made recently, I mean, I think one of the things that we've done is we've spent a lot of money on a tech project that, to be honest with you, has got us absolutely nowhere. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I think there's two things that went wrong with that. First was a image that one could attain perfection, you know, especially with the help of technology. And I remember someone saying to me, you know, always stop at 80% because, you know, the remaining 20% to perfection is just a waste of time, you know. You know, so that was one thing that's been a complete waste of money and a a big mistake. And I think the other thing is sometimes vanity gets the better of one and you plough lots of money into, say, a marketing campaign Mm -hmm. or a marketing idea or a great idea. And because you're so invested in it personally, mm-hmm. you can't see sometimes that it's not working, you know, mm-hmm. and so you double down on it rather than just retreating. So you've always got to be like careful that your ego isn't dri- driving yeah. the decision. And I think one final thing I would add to that is we've probably been guilty of at times being too risk averse, funnily enough, mm-hmm. right. which is yeah. which is not something that you hear that often. But maybe that early experience with starting another brand and it not quite working you know, we tried other things as well. So we had a kind of photo shoot locations agency. Mm-hmm. Holiday lets. We did holiday lettings. We've, we've tried lots of different things. Mm-hmm. And you realise in the end that it always comes back to, you know, make the thing about the thing. Yeah. And, and one idea that you can land. We've got a great idea. Yeah. It's an amazing business model. It's it, it really works well and we've proven it, which is why we decided, okay, well, if we start Inigo, it's exactly the same business model. It's within the same building we know that it works. It's just applied to a different part of the market. Mm-hmm. That's why it's been successful. You talked about hiring the right personnel earlier in terms of that cultural fit. Mm. What are the most valuable investments that you've made into the business? Is it team, personnel, training? Is it website or are there other things that where you've spent money that you've gone, yeah, that was really, that really moved the dial? I'd say we get a lot of value out of our photography. We've been quite good at identifying you know, young talent pretty early in their careers who frankly, you know, will come and work for us because they get great access to really good houses. I think everything that we do is founded on imagery and selling a dream. And actually that's a real differentiator for us. So I'd say that's been a really important thing. Yeah. When I look at the best money we've spent, I think it's, yes, certainly some high risk recruitment that you think you just really think that person's a genius Mm -hmm. But are they really going to work because they don't totally fit the mould of who I expected to take this job, you know? And sometimes that doesn't work. But when it does work, you know, I can just think of a few individuals that have absolutely turned the dial massively on our company. And similarly, as I said earlier, I can think of a couple of consultants that have come in and given us a new view on our business that's really given us a lot of um confidence to do a few things that we were i guess a bit risk averse towards Mm. do you think for someone starting a business now they've just got to build in the reality of not all your hires are going to work and there's going to be some 
money that spent six, 12 months or recruitment fees that the reality is there's a sort of like, there is a churn. Yeah, but I think people are so um, much too risk averse when it comes to hiring. Mm -hmm. I think, and people really look at, oh, have they got the right experience in my industry? You know, almost like, do they look like me? Do they think like yeah. me? Like, no, it's one of the areas that you really do need to trust your instinct. Obviously, absolutely check it out and do your due diligence. But actually, I think that's an area where you can be really risky because it's also an area where you can row back pretty easily as yeah. well. Because if they don't work out, you can get them gone within yeah. a relatively easy, short space of time. We also use psychometric profiling a lot, which is brilliant. Um, so I would definitely recommend that. Tell me more about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very simple process where um, the prospective employee answers a set of questions and it tells you a lot about how they operate in their character. As a business, as we said earlier, that looks at, I suppose, team-oriented people that have that right level of empathy, it tells us whether they are going to fit that profile or not i mean it's unbelievably accurate so really? so when you decide that this person is good and you take them on and then you look back six months later on their psychometric it's a picture of them and who mm -hmm. they are i think we've probably refined our methods haven't we for for recruitment quite a lot yeah. over the years we also use a tool that kind of screens people's sort of basic data out um in terms of you know their background their name their education so we kind of chop that all that stuff out right. at the beginning so we can really hone in on like who they are and what mm -hmm. they're about and you, you see that stuff later so you really try to make as much of a decision on the core of the person as yeah. opposed to all the stuff that's kind of on the surface do you use recruiters or do you have in house? do you no. do it in-house or no, people just don't. contact you or no, you we want find... to make sure we don't get loads of calls from recruiters yeah. so no we don't i'm just gonna read i'm gonna read your number out at the end of this <laughs> <laughs> perfect um <laughs> there's a reason we don't use recruiters because we pipeline talent so we do a lot of work in terms of um pushing out content about the employee experience yep so we really want to make kind of working with us something people can aspire to that means we have people contacting us. That means that when we do have a role that's open, yeah. as I say, we've got a pipeline got of talent. And that was actually one of the things that did transform our business was absolutely promoting our employees and the employee experience. Through LinkedIn, social channels, their channels. social channels, yeah, and just on our content, our general content, just yeah. making them more visible. I mean, we even did something called, what was it called? That the, the was a working away from field work. Field work, Field yeah. work. Hugely impactful, you remember. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've done it for a while. Um, no, but that was actually a great initiative. What we did was when we were smaller, we could we could take pods of staff, so let's say to four, five, six people at once, and they would get dispatched to some great architectural masterpiece somewhere around the country, perhaps in the you know, in a nice landscape somewhere. Yeah. And they could go about their daily work as long as they had Wi Fi, but from that location. Um so they'd spend two days there, they would all sleep over. You know, obviously they get given some spending money to have a nice time. Yeah. A, that was a great experience for them. It was a good bonding experience. But B, of course, we got some good content out of it as well. Yeah. And that was actually a really good recruitment device for us. Sounds great. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was good. What's the best piece of advice that you've ever received about running or building a business? I'm going to maybe refer to my my dad on this one, I think. I remember really clearly in the early days in running the business, he would constantly reinforce to me that everything's cyclical and that when you're going through a really tough time because of, say, the wider you know, economic climate, it will come back around again. 
and it will be fine. Mm -hmm. And I think it's quite hard to recognise that when you're young, naive and flying by the seat of your pants. Yes, absolutely. I think that's right. I still have your dad's voice in my head, actually, in terms of these mortgage interest rates. And I remember him talking to us about like when mortgage rates were... Uh, the interest rates were sort of 12, 13, 14%. So, you know, now that they're, you know, everyone's shocked that they've gone up to sort of four or five, it's like, hmm. yeah, you guys are like, come on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Triple it. <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting that my dad said to me, success and all failure is final. Same yeah. idea, right? It's like mm-hmm. snakes and ladders. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just, it's always up and down. Yeah, keep buggering on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. People fail because they quit, right? Yeah. Do you take time out to enjoy the achievements? You've obviously had many over your career. Do you get to sort of together have a beer and say what well, we did? We had a really good week this week or quarter or year or that was a huge moment. Well, I tell you what, we still haven't been to the fat duck. <laughs> you not? Well, I mean, back in the early days, someone's it was probably like... listening who's got some sway because yeah, it's a hugely yeah, exactly. connected audience. You, you, so. Yeah, but you remember when the fat duck was the fat duck? Yeah, back in the day, like yeah. the fat duck was like the ultimate, you know. And it was like, okay, if we if we nail this, we're gonna go to the fat duck. You know, go out to the fat duck, and then we were like, okay, we made, it, let's go. Oh, we can't book it. Yeah. <laughs> and then like, we did actually have a booking, and then COVID came along. Is that right? Yeah. Oh. That, they, or they had the, a flood there or something like that. Has that so, been the yeah. only metric of celebrating your success no, is the trip to the fat duck? No, but it's interesting, <laughs> isn't it? Because actually we're, we're really bad at it. And I, th- I, I suspect a lot of entrepreneurs are because yeah. you're, you have a relentlessness that drives you onto the next thing. Yeah. Um, I remember right back in our magazine days, you know, you, you, you write a piece and it, it's published, you know, a month, two, three months later. And by the time it comes out, you're incredibly bored of it because you're doing mm. something else. And I think that I think business is like that as yeah. well. It just keeps trucking along. Um, but we did have a really nice moment a couple of weeks ago because uh, we were both made honorary fellows of the RIBA, which is the Royal Institute of British Architects. Wow! Um, and that was that was actually a huge moment, I think, for both of us because if you look back at two, you know, twenty-something architecture journalists fiddling around with a business they had no idea what they were doing from their bedrooms the idea that we would be recognized within the architecture industry as having made a positive impact i yeah. think would have been the ultimate achievement to be honest and it's quite easy for us to gloss over that but it would mm-hmm. have been so that was i think a really nice moment of reflection and we're very lucky actually the two of us because we have an amazing um, management team mm-hmm. at the modern house in indigo you know we've got a team of about 90 odd people now and it's a really well-oiled machine. And actually, of course, there's the odd crisis. And of course, we're both, you know, very busily engaged with it. But it's not the kind of day-to-day mania that it was in the early days. Mm. It's evolved, I guess. It's not a yeah. startup. Yeah. But yeah, post-COVID, we haven't cracked that kind of group celebration thing. You know, we used to go on a kind of annual pilgrimage to a great site of design or yeah. somewhere with with the whole team. And that used to be a real kind of you know, lying in the sand. But given that we're, and I remember it was like, you know, we started out in a car and then we, you know, graduated to a minibus. Yeah. And then one year we had a coach. Yeah. And then the next year we had two coaches. And, and it was train. A real, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was a real, and now, you know, God knows how we would get yeah, anywhere. It's a bit know. unwieldy, isn't it? I mean, we're not huge, but, you know, still like, taking 90 people somewhere is um, tricky. So, um, yeah. It's we, a very different culture, isn't it, when there's six of you and, yeah. you know, everyone's birthdays and, you know, everyone's wins, everyone's. And then when you've got 90, it's like, fucking hell. Those, mm. those, 
initial cultural pieces are very difficult to scale up to that point. And and we're not shy to admit as well that each time we go into the office, there'll be a load of people there that we haven't met before and we don't know. And that's obviously hugely different to how it was. Um, And that's the way it should be. And it's quite exciting that it has this life beyond its founders. That's really great. We, we, We really like that. And, you know, this idea of, you know, plugging in really great minds and seeing sort of what yeah, happens. That's, sort of stepping back. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. What's the biggest myth or assumption about running a business and has it stacked up? Well, I think you you touched on it earlier that you need to drink five gallons of coffee and stay up till midnight in order to make a success. I think that's a complete myth. Yeah. There are times where, you know, a bit of coffee and a bit of late nights will help. But as you say, in the long term, if you do it all the time, it'll it'll not help. I remember quite in the early days of um, the modern house. I remember Albert, you had that book on your desk, the four hour, four hour work four week. Four hour work oh, week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, How's that going? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. No, but actually, that's really interesting because it because that actually kind of says quite a lot about our mindset around it. I think it has been very, very all-consuming and relentless mm. um, along the way. But actually, you don't have to be completely beholden to it at all times and all hyped up around it i don't think i mean i i always like you know warren buffett's approach he was obviously i don't know the second wealthiest man in the world or whatever he is he goes into work he, at the same time every day does he picks up the same breakfast from his local mcdonald's every day or whatever it is and he sits and he reads all day yeah you know and then i think he makes like two investments a year you, you know and that that's it so it's really just a very calmly and with a lot of consideration thinking about things filtering things and then when you really feel that there's something to be done Mm -hmm. just really doing it and doing it properly yeah no it's good advice Mm -hmm. how do you keep learning do you read audiobooks are you in the car a lot so sort of listening to things podcasts i mean i learn an awful lot about arsenal football club (laughs) (laughs) hugely useful i imagine in the day-to-day of your life it's funny, isn't it? Yeah, I learn from doing things like this. You know, I, I, I love, you know, I have a podcast as well that we do through The Modern House. Yeah. It's so enjoyable. It's so I love learning from other people and you do that through conversations. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important to come out from behind your desk and we both live out on the sticks these days. So actually we come into London as much as we can, mm-hmm. just meet people, have conversations. Things always stem from conversations, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much whenever someone says can we meet for a coffee i'll say yes just because you never know what will come out of it it's such good advice because i think people always said to me you know you've got to find a way to step back from your business and you've got to you know like you've got to be really diligent with your time and i always felt instinctively always take the call always speak to the person mm-hmm. and actually so many amazing opportunities have come from not not a sort of hard sell or a transaction and there's people mm-hmm. in my network that i don't even we've never I've never invoiced them for anything, but you sort of create these communities around you of like-minded people who want to share and interact and learn, as you say. And I think it's a really, that sort of old school piece of actually meeting and having a coffee and finding differences and similarities with other people doing something sort of similar, you know, if it is running a business, but obviously totally different industries is such a valuable way of keeping your brain informed and if mm, you know absolutely. not least just to be able to say oh i've got an issue with an fd or i've got an hr query or how do you guys do this or even those small things when you start having people who go well we use this and that was brilliant for us i think that sort of 
underused. Um, we get a lot of questions about that, sort of how do we network or if we don't live in London. And there's, there is so much opportunity and people are so keen to meet and talk. So yeah. I think it is really good advice. And always don't just look at your own industry or your own people near you. Every other area has massively interesting things to show you and see and do, you know, yeah. like, I mean, for instance, my kid, I've got, you know, young teenage kids and you just got to like maintain an interest in what they're interested yeah. in as well. Just maintain an interest, yeah. a curiosity, just maintain a massive and curiosity. And keep present in a life that's like so different to when we were teenagers. Oh God, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Well, other industries and I think other territories as well. Oh, territories, yeah. I, I'm really lucky because my, my wife is a designer and artist and she gets invited to other countries quite often to do projects mm. and... um you know, we've been all over the place. We went to Portland and Oregon to go and visit Nike, for example. And that was really fascinating for me as a business owner to see how they run a huge business like that. Yeah. And what I discovered was that it is all about the employee experience. So they have this huge building that's dedicated to staff being able to come in and just make stuff. It's like a big workshop. So they have people helping you and you can go in and you can make a birthday card for your mum or you can make a t-shirt that you want to wear that evening or oh, whatever wow. you want and they have drinks and then they have talks and things like that and they're really great love uh, that yeah so actually uh, you know I suppose that's an experience that I had that I you know that, that I was fortunate to have through my wife but but I think I took quite a lot away from mm-hmm. and yeah just going to different countries if you can um, and meeting people doing interesting things elsewhere it give you a huge amount I would say how do you define success? Well, someone described it to me as, you know, you know you're successful when you've managed to stop the goalposts moving. <laughs> I thought that was quite a good one. You know, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it, it makes sense for sort of being more in control of your own Exactly. Destiny. And also, you know, if, if I were to tell my teenage self or whatever that I would have all the things that I've got now, they'd be like, oh, my God, that's, yeah. you know, that's amazing. Wow. But also you kind of sit there and go, oh, actually, I want that a little bit more. Yeah. And if you can ever and, you know, it, it applies to wherever you are in the journey, actually, if you can go, no, you know where I am, this is, yeah. this is pretty good. Well, that's the reflection piece as well, isn't it? Like I was, I was listening to uh, something on TikTok the other day that was saying most entrepreneurs possess two qualities. One is a constant fear that they're not going to be good enough or they're not where they're supposed to be. Yeah. And the second is a feeling that they have something special to offer. And it's the intersect of those two <laughs> things that is really the driving force, which in many ways makes celebration of success a very challenging thing because mm-hmm. to your point, you're sort of always ahead onto the next thing. And it's sort of like once it's done, it's immediately in the past. Mm. Matt, for you, success definition? Yeah, I think... There's sort of personal and professional success, isn't there? So personal success, I think, looks like having freedom in one's life, I think, is success. You know, time is obviously the most important asset that we all have. And actually, I I feel like we're very lucky because, you know, frankly, the two of us, if we want to go and do something just to nourish ourselves personally, we can take the time to do that, Mm -hmm. whether that's go to an exhibition or take the dog for a walk. We can do it. And lots of people can't do that. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's great success for me. I think sort of professionally, just the idea of make, you know having some sort of cultural impact is really exciting. We're a B Corp. We try to do things ethically and socially um, in a responsible way, but also environmentally as well. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully there's a kind of educational aspect to what we do. 
you know, helping people understand that the way that they live is quite an important thing. And, you know, designing things in a certain way can really have quite a profound impact on your happiness, actually. Mm-hmm. I think that's really quite an important message. So, yeah, being able to affect as many people as we can through what we do, I think is exciting. The podcast is called The Busyness Podcast. We know productivity can be challenging in an environment where we're all expected to be busy all the time. We talked about that a little bit earlier. If you had an extra hour in the day, what would you use it for? Yeah, I guess a combination of either reading or going for a run is how I do spend my spare hours. Yeah. Can you do both? Yeah, I don't know if you, you run while you read. Oh, yeah, audiobook could audio be the solution to that. Audiobooks. Do you think no, that's how they a... came up with them? Someone was trying to <laughs> run. They were like, guys, there's got to be an easier way. <laughs> I, I do listen to podcasts though when I'm running. Do you ever do that? I don't actually. I no. quite like it. I do when I'm driving, but I find it quite meditative. Mm. With that extra hour, it would enable me to a walk the dog and b get some exercise in. So that for me, that would be it. It's kind of I find juggling those two things actually quite annoying because. Yeah. If you go out and give walk the dog for an hour, then there's not much space for, for doing that. So I love the act of running, the act of putting one foot in front of another, especially when I've got some sort of work conundrum mm-hmm. going on. It's hugely useful. Yeah. And I find that when you run, something happens inside your brain where things connect together. Mm-hmm. And I have actually kind of probably my best ideas when I'm cavorting around the countryside somewhere. Yeah, I mean, Matt and I are quite big on walking meetings, you know, like meeting up at some point in the countryside and, you know, having a bit of an agenda for the conversation, a few, you know, knotty issues that we're dealing with. And and it's just so much better to be talking about things in the open air while you're moving than sat in some stuffy room with loads of coffee, you know. I was always advised that difficult conversations you do as walking meetings because people are more likely to be honest when they're not looking at you in the eye. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you can be... even if it's more kind of creative conversations as yeah. well, it's just it's just better all around. Better. What's next for you and all the business? We talked about Inigo, obviously, but... Well, I think, you know, whatever it is, it's about staying true to your original values and ideals, mm-hmm. going with the grain of what your community wants from you, you know. Mm-hmm. So we've actually done quite a lot of research on, for instance, how people use our website and what they want from us, you know, and basically making their lives better. Yeah. So, for instance, you know, we get a ton of people always asking us, oh, what's that tap in the picture? You know, what's what's that oh, I see. lamp there? You know, and you could say, oh, well, that's great. We could do loads of e-commerce because then we'll make loads yeah. of money out of it. But then actually we think about it slightly differently. We think, actually, how can we be of genuine use? People genuinely want to know what Mm -hmm. that lamp is. So let's start off with how can we answer that desire, which is clearly there. And then monetization, I'm sure, will Mm. come somewhere along the way. You know, um, I know a guy who works at WhatsApp and WhatsApp obviously is based on that principle of basically putting something out there. Don't make any money out of it. See how people use it. Yeah. And then the monetization comes, comes later. <laughs> so he's actually working on how the hell to monetize it, which is probably not as easy as they thought it was going to be. Well, hopefully this afternoon someone will have some answers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope so as well. Yeah. But, it, you know, it's easy to, to brush um, brush over Inigo, though. I mean, Inigo mm. is only two and a half years old or something mm. like that. And it's about a third of the size of the modern house. I mean, if you think about the addressable market for it, it's massive. Yeah. So actually, we could just spend the next 10 years turbo boosting that and making it as big and as 
great as it could possibly be. Mm-hmm. That's a lot to be getting on with. We won't just do that, but that is that will undoubtedly be the kind of core of whatever it is that we do moving forward. And it gets back to that thing of, um, yeah, work out what you what you do well and what you're good at and what people like from you and just try and do as much of that as you physically can. And I, I can't, I've lost track of the number of sort of sessions we've had on business development over the years where we've kind of come all the way back round <laughs> at the end of the meeting to let's just keep doing what we're doing. Yeah. And I also think that, you know, the modern house kind of reflects the modern way of living and that's always changing. You know, life, you know, obviously COVID was the biggest thing that changed our way of living and completely changed how we think about the home as well. So many people working from home. So it's really great to be at the forefront of how people live in, you know, communities and in society today. So we can constantly keep refreshing yeah. the narratives, the story, the look, you know, and we, and estate agency has been around since forever. So, yeah. you know, whereas a lot of things like travel agency and things have sort of disappeared. Yeah. So hopefully... The interesting thing you said earlier about launching Inigo or a version of Inigo, sort of 2008 financial crisis, you know, two years ago wasn't necessarily an ideal time to start a business, sort of mid-COVID heading into a recession. So it's interesting that that sort of similar similar infrastructure and idea Mm. has has landed Mm. now with better timing and probably hugely as a result of everything that you've learned from Modern House over the last however many years, 20 mm. odd years. Mm. No, that's right. I, th- I think the key point there was we we had internally the requisite, um, frankly, number of people working for us and infrastructure to be able to actually have a launch pad to do another thing. I think before when we were so small, it's just impossible to divide yourself up yeah. like that. Um, and I think that's, we've really learned from that. You can only do something when you're ready to do it. You can't force it. Finally, what does home mean to you? It's great because it's such a big subject. And I think that's actually one of the things that most estate agencies miss is that home encompasses so many different things. And it's also a kind of reflection of yourself. I think, you know, if you go into a space that's your home as opposed to a space that isn't your home, it's that sort of expression of of yourself that you, you know, that I think is important. And I think that a lot of estate agencies miss out on that nuance, really, and just see it as four bedrooms in this postcode mm. whereas it's it's a much much richer thing than that but again i think it's wonderful that everyone has a different idea of home personally i quite like i'm sort of as much at home in a in different spaces as i am in my own home you know home is where the heart is that type of thing mm-hmm. yeah you've said in the past that you wouldn't mind living in a hotel haven't you i have said that yeah and i still sort of stand by that really it feels like blasphemy in the context of modern house yeah i suppose it does but you're I- sort of bringing with you all the components to make that space something that represents home for you as opposed to specifically you know the the walls that's right and i just love the way that different people interpret home you know so differently yeah and, uh, you know, I always say to people, like, really put yourself in into your home. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people say, oh, no, but that means it'll it'll never be able to sell mm, because right. it's too much reflection of me. But actually, people respond so well to a home that someone has poured a lot of love and humanity into. And in fact, they tend to sell a lot better. Right. I mean, unless you're a sort of, you know, lunatic who... Absolutely nut job. Absolutely nut job. pictures of you all over the wall. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly, yeah. Uh, Matt, what does home mean? It's a question that we always ask on our podcast. And there are, as Albert says, so many different answers to it. Um, like Hans Ulrich Obrist the other day said that he thinks home is an archipelago. 
which is such a great word. But he he says a bit like you're saying actually, Albert. He sort of says that home is kind of a collection of places. It's not one place. And for him, it's the mountains where he goes walking in Switzerland, or it's the mm. serpentine gallery where he works, yeah. or it's the coffee shop around the corner from his flat, and so on. It's a series of places. Mm-hmm. That's his personal viewpoint on it. Mine is a bit different to that. But I think I've been reading a book actually about the psychology of the home. And what's really interesting in it is it says that um, African tribes that have had no connection to the outside world whatsoever all build themselves homes that kind of look the same. Okay. And they're quite, they're, they're very primitive, quite basic kind of conical structures. And the door is, is like, it's like a slit. They don't actually make a door shape. They make a sort of slit and you kind of sidle through this slit into the space. But his hypothesis, the author, is that it's essentially a womb. So I actually think that my conclusion is that the home is really, it's a, it's a womb, um, but it, it's essentially a safe space yeah. for us. Mm-hmm. It's a space where we can be vulnerable. You know, our own true selves can be articulated in a way that they really can't be in the outside world. Mm-hmm. That's how I see home on a kind of conceptual level. On a sort of more physical level, it's the way that the light falls across the kitchen in the morning. It's the sound of my children upstairs as they're getting ready for school. It's the dog scratching at the door. It's the smell of lunch being cooked. It's all of those multisensory things, I think, that you get within the home that make it what it is. Thank you both so much for coming and talking to me. I know you're busy and I know you're not in London all the time, so I really appreciate the effort. I think... You've been incredibly honest and insightful and thoughtful and many people at all stages of their entrepreneurial journeys will really resonate with what you're saying. Your business is unique, inspiring, exciting, interesting and no doubt will continue to be. So um, thank you for your time and um, hopefully I'll see you guys soon. All right, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. A great question. It's really interesting. Yeah.